It's a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program. And by way of introduction, let me just read this sentence from an article she wrote recently. Canada is a space-faring nation, a world leader in mining, and a major player in the global carbon economy. It is therefore well-positioned to actively participate in the emerging space resources domain. But the issues arising in this sphere are bigger than Canada, since they involve the future of mankind on Earth and in space. The, art, the author of this article, which is entitled Space Mining is Not Science Fiction and Canada Could Figure Prominently, is Elizabeth Stein. Dr. Stein is the Castles Brock Fellow at uh, the University of Western Ontario, where she is an Associate Professor of Mining and Finance Law and is also a member of the faculty member of the Earth and Space Exploration uh, Unit at Western University. Dr. Stein, Elizabeth, good morning and welcome to our program. Good morning, Sterling. Please call me Elizabeth. I will indeed, Elizabeth. It's a fascinating article. Uh, and of course, uh, we're hearing more about all of this recently because of people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson has got something up his sleeve too. More and more earthbound billionaires are recognizing the need to, uh, shall we say, access space a little more easily in the future, aren't they? Absolutely. This is the next frontier. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about how organized that frontier is, because in your excellent and provocative piece at theconversation.com, Elizabeth, you refer to something called the Outer Space Treaty. Is that basically the framework, the only framework we have right now for any kind of uh, earthbound cooperation in space? And if so, what is the Outer Space Treaty? So the Outer Space Treaty is basically the constitution of space. It's an, an agreement, a treaty that was signed in 1967. So a long time ago, if you think of things like space mining, it wasn't even on anybody's radar at the mm -hmm. time, which is why we have gaps in the Outer Space Treaty. Um, at the time when they signed it, the main objective was to avoid wars in space. Right. It was at the time of the Cold War, um, Russia and the United States and the United Kingdom were some of the main protagonists behind the signing of the Outer Space Treaty. Right, so and during this... I'm sorry, uh, during this time of the, of the organization and the preparation of the Outer Space Treaty, many of the players, Russia or the Soviet Union in those days, America and others, were indeed experimenting while these treaty terms and conditions were being drafted. Uh, some of the countries were firing objects into space, weren't they? Yes, they were. And so we have a lot of space junk at the moment. That's one of the, one of the big problems, because these can, in fact, collide and create big damage. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm digressing here, but if one of these pieces of space junk collides into the International Space Station, that creates a big problem for us. Indeed, it does. So back to 1967, how long did it take once the world or once the major players decided, Elizabeth, that we better put, put together some kind of framework uh, for uh, outer space going forward? Uh, how long did it take once there was an agreement that the, something should be written down? How long did it take them to agree on what should be written down? 
Well, these things are always very lengthy, Sterling. I don't have the exact data on the Outer Space Treaty, but treaties as a whole, because they involve so many parties, take a long time to negotiate, and normally they take even longer to come into effect because the, the countries have to sign on and then they have to enact it into their national legislation. Um, But now the the problem with the Outer Space Treaty is that it made provision that no country could appropriate any of the celestial bodies, so planets or asteroids or the moon, for instance. Mm -hmm. But nobody thought that someone might one day want to moon want to to mine the moon or one of these bodies. The science simply wasn't developed. Ah, so the concern the concern at the time was that uh, unlike uh, the the 14th century, where you could jump off a boat, plant a flag on the beach, and say this country now belongs to Portugal, uh, they didn't want that happening in space, where somebody, for example, like Neil Armstrong, could plant a flag on the moon and say this body now belongs to America. They they did not want that to happen, right? Exactly, exactly. So the Outer Space Treaty says that is not possible. And all of the space-faring nations were party to it, so they are all in agreement. That is not possible. But now there's a technical debate, and the debate is the following. If we go to the moon with a spacecraft and we extract some of the moon's resources, like, Mm -hmm. for instance, some of the ice or some of the metal that may be on the moon, can we take that extracted resource and can we appropriate that? Ah. And what do we have by way of consensus, if anything, on that provocative question, Elizabeth? Well, there is no great consensus. Mm. There's a majority view and a minority view. And the minority view is busy becoming more of a majority view because it involves the United States. So there are two countries who are in the lead when it comes to this minority view. The minority view is to say, yes, you can. You can appropriate absolutely those resources. Okay, wherever you land, you can grab the local rocks and do with them as you please. Exactly. Okay. The first to do so was Luxembourg. Not exactly a space powerhouse, now are they? Well, this was my thought when I first read it, but then when you start doing a bit of research, it all becomes much more clear because Luxembourg is a financial powerhouse. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go into space themselves, but they certainly see the opportunity and they want to profit from it. So Luxembourg is at the moment the hub for all space activity in Europe. Interesting. Mm. So now, uh, what, what, if, if, that's, if the minority view uh, on this matter of appropriating whatever you want from wherever you land in space, if that's the minority view, Elizabeth, what is the majority view opposing that? So the majority view has, I think, been mainly an academic one. Okay. Um, being that no appropriation means no appropriation, and therefore, mm-hmm. if you can't take the planet, you also can't take its resources. But this is where the shift comes in. And I, I specifically mentioned Luxembourg because Luxembourg simply said, 
we interpret that clause in our national laws and this is the way we interpret it. They took the very clear route. But the United States, and as you know, they are the world's biggest player in so many ways, mm-hmm. they also interpreted it in this minority way. And because of the tremendous sway that the United States has, they are busy swaying opinion. And they did this with a NASA initiative called the Artemis Accords. Oh, okay. Which you so, might have seen I, I made a reference to. Yes, you, you do reference the Artemis Accord, and that's quite recent. As a matter of fact, it's a 2020 document, is it not? Yes. There's a bit of history leading up to it. Okay. In the Obama years, I think it was 2015, um, the United States started making legislation saying, we are also going to interpret it in this minority way. But it, it wasn't quite as clear-cut for the United States as for Luxembourg, because Luxembourg has politics that are a lot less complicated than those of the United States. Okay. So, in the United States, yes, they, they made laws, a number of them by now, and I'm simplifying a little because they have different names. Um, but they've, they've made laws saying, yes, you can go to space, you can, you can exploit, um, you can extract, and you can have, and this is the important thing, you can have private companies participating. Aha, okay. This, Luxembourg wasn't going that far. But, you know, the United States and business being a big part of it, they were saying, you can, we can now ask private entities to go to, the, to go to, say, the moon, do an extraction, and they've actually offered a contract like that, NASA, do an extraction of a resource up to 500 grams, which is not a whole lot, mm-hmm. um, take a photograph of that resource, send us the coordinates, and we will purchase that from them. And it's not a problem how they go back and actually recover the resource afterwards. So this sounds tremendously technical, but there's a very good reason for it. It's a handover. It's a transfer of ownership that takes place at that moment. So let me understand this, Elizabeth, because it's a little complicated, and it's early in the morning. There's a deal. There's a deal now where it, you you can go to if you uh, say let's let's just say Elon Musk because he's probably the best known space uh, Earthling uh, who's non non governmental. So Musk mm-hmm. wants to send a a, a, a craft to uh, let's say the moon because it's easy, uh, and uh, he'll he'll land somewhere on the moon and uh, take a picture of uh, that particular spot, do a soil sample, offer uh, the results to prospective clients who will then uh, uh, purchase what? What can can they purchase uh, a, a spacecraft full of rocks, or do they purchase a plot uh, of land? What's the actual acquisition? Okay, now they cannot purchase a plot of land because you cannot appropriate the moon. Okay. Um, we, we got a break for the news here, Elizabeth. So if you can just okay. sort of condense it and then we'll, we'll, we'll flesh it out afterwards. Okay, so they can purchase moon rock. Oh, okay. Ah, now that we do understand. Dr. Elizabeth Stein is joining us this morning from her 
post at the University of Western Ontario in London, where she is a member of the Faculty of Law. Dr. Stein has also written an article, a wonderful piece at theconversation.com entitled, Space Mining is Not Science Fiction, and Canada Could Figure Prominently. And Elizabeth, you've been talking to us about the background behind all of this. We have a treaty that was passed in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty, that essentially established a framework for Earthlings not to go to war with each other in space. But since then, we've, uh, we've of course, become technologically capable of doing, well, things like mining in space. And uh, now as an earthbound lawyer who has a lot of time for space activity and treaties and agreements, there is another one, a recent one called the Artemis Accord. Canada signed on to the Artemis Accord. Elizabeth, did we sign on to that 1967 Outer Space Treaty too? Oh, yes, absolutely, Sterling. So now, what is the Artemis Accord? Uh, if, the, if the 1967 deal was about let's not fight in space, is the Artemis Accord just an update on that, or is it about commerce in space? Okay, first let me just clarify that the Artemis Accord is not a UN treaty in the sense that the Outer Space Treaty is. The Artemis okay. Accord is a NASA initiative, so it's, it's run by the United States. It's not got international law status like the Outer Space Treaty. And uh-huh. yes, it is all about business. The Artemis Accord sets out this minority view, among other things, it sets out this minority view that extraction is possible and you can appropriate, you can take what you have extracted. Now, can I ask you, just interrupting, by the other two major players in the space race, of course, are Russia and China. Are they signatories? If this Artemis Accord is not a UN thing, but a, an American NASA-led uh, uh, event or, or, or uh, activity, have Russia and China, uh, I doubt, but I have to ask, have they signed on to this? Have they done a deal with the enemy? Not likely. So where are they with respect to this? No, not only have they not signed on, but they have made it clear that they will be working together. Oh, okay. So clearly they have established that uh, as far as they're concerned, that minority opinion, if you land somewhere and you find something interesting that might work back on earth, take it home with you. Nobody's going to bother you. Well, nobody's quite clear on what exactly Russia and China has as an opinion, but hmm. it, it would appear that it is the minority view that they're following because, you know, why would they not commercialize? I've certainly uh-huh. not heard anything from them saying, oh, no, it should be protected against any activity. Uh, mm-hmm. They just are not participating in the NASA-led initiative. Okay, now let's suppose you're the you're the lawyer in this conversation, Dr. Stein, uh, and you talk in your article about Earth lawyers contemplating space mining projects, as are the people of Luxembourg, because they've already enthusiastically signed on to this arrangement because they recognize the profitability in the future. So mm-hmm. lawyers who are trying to put deals together for the future, for space mining or space exploration, you say need to look at four specific areas of activity. Can you outline those for you and, and rattle them off, please? Yes, certainly. So the first is security of tenure, which is 
simply, do you have the rights to the project that you want to undertake? Okay. Secondly, there's the fiscal regime. So this refers to taxes, royalties, things that amounts that must normally be paid where you have your mining concession. Um, the third is how bankable the project is. In other words, can you get funding for the project? This is a big mm-hmm. one for space. And the last one would be project feasibility. So normally in mining, we just mean, can the project physically be done? Mm -hmm. And technical feasibility is a big one for space. But also here we have um, project feasibility in the sense, is it possible to extract and and own that resource again? So it, it rather comes back to the first one of security of tenure. Sure. So all of this, of course, seems rather fanciful to some still, I'm sure, Elizabeth, but we know, and I've mentioned the names already, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Branson's out there somewhere, and these are the only, these are only Western people that we know. There are also billionaires in Asia with space aspirations of their own. And so fanciful, though it may seem on this Sunday morning, we know that there are people and groups out there ready to literally pour billions into space mining and space exploration because they uh, anticipate being able to just uh, re- 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 uh, realize profits that are beyond imagination. Well, let's just point out for a moment that Bezos and Musk are the world's two richest, richest people. Sure. So if between the two of them, they both target this, and it's inevitable, Sterling, it's inevitable because we have the climate change problem, which means we need renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Is, everybody is looking at electrical vehicles and lithium batteries. There isn't enough materials around for the, the enormity of the electrical vehicle rollouts that they want to be doing across right. the world. There isn't enough copper for all of the transmission that would be necessary, all of the electricity transmission that would be necessary. So either they must really do deep uh, deep sea mining, and that's a very contentious issue, or otherwise they must look towards space, or maybe both. Mm. Uh, And from a feasibility point of view, one of the four pillars that uh, Earth lawyers need to consider uh, for these future arrangements, uh, that uh, the deep sea mining looks to be, uh, from an earthling perspective, more uh, higher risk in some ways to the environment, particularly, uh, than space. Well, it's absolutely higher risk for Earth's environment. I I agree with you there. There is so much that's unknown about the deep sea, biodiversity being so important, all these new organisms that they're finding all the time, Mm -hmm. but also the potential for damage is is massive because if they disturb the sediment on the ocean floor, then it travels for kilometers. So even if it's a relatively small area that they mine, it has a very big impact on a large area. Interesting. So we we look to space as a safer environmentally, again, from the Earth's environment perspective, we look to space because it is safer for all of us here on Earth. Elizabeth, just a practicality question, because you've sort of danced around feasibility and probability and all of that sort of thing. How likely, given that, because I I, I sense this this, um, 
vibe of enthusiasm in your article that i mean it's very mm-hmm. scholarly and and very legally and very uh, properly organized but i just i pick up on some sense of enthusiasm you have in in in, in other so i have to ask you point blank how likely do you think it is in your lifetime that you'll see space mining it's inevitable it's inevitable and i say that because even two years ago i didn't know what i know now but if I see the technical state of art that exists, um, Colorado School of Mining has a doctoral and master's program on space mining. Wow. Was, you know, the technology is there. The law always lags behind a little. So w- what I'm doing at the moment with a colleague of mine, Valerie Westerfeld, we're looking at addressing these gaps in the regulatory front so that we can be sure that they don't that we don't have the wild west all over again so to say so that regulations can catch up with the reality because the reality i can tell you is coming they're doing 3d printing already on the international space station Mm -hmm. Um, yes there are cubesats going up i have a an interesting friend and colleague who's looking at making um, at refilling sat- satellites, he's talking about um, space. What is his wonderful term? It eludes me for the for the moment. But basically, he wants to repurpose the satellites that at the moment are burned out and just hanging there by giving mm-hmm. them fuel. And all of these are concrete plans. They're busy happening. Yes. Yeah, well, look at all the satellite activity that Bezos has been responsible for just in the last 12 months. It is it is fascinating. It is driven, I would think, a lot by earthlings with vision and, of course, an awful lot of money. And it is hopefully tempered by people like you who appreciate what they're up to but aren't about to turn them loose into some kind of Wild West show. This is fascinating stuff, Elizabeth. I really do appreciate your taking a few moments on this Sunday morning to join us here and, and let us uh, into your mind and give us a chance to see the view the vision of the future that you already know is coming it's wonderful stuff and i commend your article uh, to my listeners here's the title friends google it it's at theconversation.com space mining is not science fiction and canada could figure prominently by dr elizabeth stein from the faculty of law at the university of western ontario in london elizabeth thanks very much for this lovely conversation and uh, i'd love to have the opportunity to do it again thanks sterling certainly i enjoyed it just as much uh, by way of introducing our next guest let me just uh, say this american professionals uh, medical professionals specifically often advise their patients not to search the internet for symptoms before coming into the clinic yet many people turn to dr google when feeling sick so concern about cyberchondria or increased anxiety induced by the internet have made the value of using internet searches well controversial in a new study researchers from brigham and women's hospital and harvard medical school department of healthcare explored the impact internet have on patients' ability to reach a correct diagnosis. Now, here to talk about the survey and the study from Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical Center is Dr. David Levine, joining us today from Boston. Dr. Levine, thank you for joining us, sir, and good morning. 
Good morning. It's great to be with you. It's good to have you with us, uh, Dr. Levine. Uh, this survey, this uh, cyberchondria, this is not new. Uh, since the Internet has been around, David, we've talked about uh, this sort of uh, possibility uh, for many years, and, and yet uh, you've done a recent study. Has Internet uh, self-diagnosis increased with the uh, access of the Internet to more people, or have we become accustomed to having it to the point where we don't use it as much as we used to? That's a great question. Uh, the best data that we have would suggest that we are using the Internet more and more for self-diagnosis, trying to understand an underlying health problem. And in, in the U.S., for example, we know that two-thirds of adults use the Internet to search for health information, um, and roughly one-third of adults have used the Internet specifically for self-diagnosis. So that's an, it's an extraordinary number of people, and we know that that number is growing. David, is it is it a go-to situation then? Have we come around to the point where, gee, I'm, I'm experiencing an unusual symptom here. This is brand new. Um, maybe I should look it up rather than maybe I should go see a doctor. You know, that's the exact reason that we wanted to do this study, because I do think that more and more people are turning first to the Internet to help uh -huh. them answer a question then turning to their, their primary care physician or primary care office. And mm -hmm. we wanted to ask the question, is this something worthwhile? Or should we be afraid of it? Should we shun it? Or should we actually encourage it? Okay. Well, uh, okay. And here we are. This is this is the, the apex of the conversation so early already. <laughs> so, Dr. Levine, tell us what you found, please. Yeah. Well... You know, the, the findings are, are, are pretty interesting in that we were able to look um, at when a, when a patient had a question in front of them uh, and we were able to say, you know, what do you think is going on? Do you think mm. this is a skin infection? Do you think this is the common cold? And we asked them to tell us what they thought the diagnosis was. And we also asked them to tell us what the right kind of triage was or how fast they needed care. Did they need okay. to go right to the emergency room? Did they need to just let things get better on their own? Things of that sort. And mm -hmm. we asked them those questions. And then we said, all right, thanks for the answer. Now try using the Internet. Um, and then we asked them again, uh, you know, for their diagnosis and for their triage and how anxious they were about uh, the, the responses that they were giving and how anxious they were about the case. Ah, so the, in the first series of questions, they were less knowledgeable than in the second series of questions because they had a chance to go to the Internet and uh, explore, poke around, so to speak, at what might be wrong. You've got it. And so we wanted people to use just their own knowledge when they started out, and then we wanted to give people the opportunity to really organically use the internet. We didn't tell them how to use it. We just right. said, go online and do your best to figure out what's wrong, just like they would have with a normal situation. Okay. And again, uh, this is interesting stuff. And, and I, I, I don't imagine too many people were put off by those requests either. No, no, this is, this is fun, you know, and, and what, and what most of us do, right. When we have a medical question, and, um, you know, we even did ask people how hard they, they worked for, for the information, how hard it was to understand, 
we can get into a little bit of that later. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so most folks had no trouble kind of diving in um, after they gave their initial reactions. Ah, okay. So the uh, I suppose the 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 sixty four thousand dollar question is: Is uh, do people when they go to the internet to se- seek out more information about what's wrong, are they more accurately able to diagnose the real problem than without the internet? That is that is the million dollar question. And so what we were able to find was that um, after using the internet to search, uh, folks were better at diagnosing themselves, a little better. It wasn't an extraordinary boost, but about 5% better um, than, than when they had just used the internet, when they had not been able to use the internet. So gave them a little boost in, in being a diagnostician, shall we say, or, or mm-hmm. being able to diagnose the problem. David, I wanted to talk to go back and refer to that uh, the the point that was made, and and I quoted from an article from Harvard, by the way, to begin our conversation. This notion of cyberchondria. I can remember back a few years ago when the internet was starting to become available on a mass consumption level. My then uh, personal physician, an older gentleman who was not impressed with the internet and the notion of everyone self-diagnosing, uh, and he was all about uh, the hypochondriacs of the world are going to come out of the woodwork in droves and they're going to drive people like me right round the bloody bend and all of this kind of stuff because all of a sudden every imaginable thing is now going to have a name and they're going to be bugging me about it and so it was very negatively received by some in the medical establishment originally this whole dr google or web md concept basically giving a uh, permission, if you will, for hypochondriacs to go crazy. And and I think that may have happened, David, but that happened a long time ago now. <laughs> so I, I completely know where you're coming from, and I think there are plenty of folks who still feel that way about the internet in the medical profession. Um, what our paper was also able to do was to measure anxiety um, behind a case, again, both before and after using the internet. So uh-huh. we asked folks how worried they were about, about the case. And then we asked them to use the Internet and again asked them, you know, well, how worried are you now, now that you've had that dose of the Internet pushed into you? And again, fortunately, um, what our study showed, which I think is a pretty novel finding here, is that the Internet did not seem to induce that good old cyberchondria. People uh-huh. did not come away after using the Internet more afraid, more worried about their diagnoses, certain they had a heart attack or certain they had cancer, as is the off-sited example. Right, exactly. So in fact, we are over that phase in in many, many ways. And we are now at a point the internet has become such a, a common part of our lives uh, that uh, it, it, it's just, it's a point of verification. It's just another thing along the way. Uh, and so we're not, uh, we're, we are in fact making it a useful thing for ourselves, most of us. Yeah, I think I think we are showing some preliminary data toward that. Something you just said also, you know, was something we were able to look at in our paper. And it's this concept of anchoring and flipping, right? And so many of us anchor ourselves on, on what we believe prior to using the internet, right? Okay. So let's say you you thought that this was a skin infection case. So you anchored yourself on, on skin infection and really mm-hmm. you were just using the internet 
to, to essentially congratulate yourself and tell you you were right. Right. And so what we were able to show, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So uh, if, if that's the anchor, where does Flip oh, yeah. come in then? Sure, exactly. So Flip is when the internet helps you change your mind. Ah. And, it, and you, you look at, you, you go and you research, and actually, you know what? It's not a skin infection. It's something quite different. Um, maybe it's an allergic reaction instead. And so flipping could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? You could flip to the right diagnosis, or you could mm. flip to the wrong diagnosis. Obviously, we'd like you to flip to the right diagnosis. Um, And so we were able to closely look at anchoring and flipping. So it turns out that many people anchor um, and the internet does not sway them beyond their first pre-internet impression. But about 15 to 20% of people, so not a small amount, actually end up flipping after they use the internet. And it turns out that the internet helps more people flip to the correct diagnosis than to the incorrect diagnosis. As we look at a recent study from Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School about Dr. Google visits on the internet, finding that patients made modest improvements in diagnostic accuracy, and uh, uh, it's it's turned out to be a bit of a positive. And here to talk about the study, uh, one of the study team members, Dr. David Levine from the Division of General Internal Medicine and Primary Care at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Levine, your Boston Bruins are playing the Washington Capitals this afternoon at four o'clock downtown. My Vancouver Canucks are, well, getting back to practice today, finally, because they've just gone through an extremely nasty bout of COVID. The reason that I bring this whole thing up is a question about COVID with respect to Dr. Google. Since this whole thing has began, begun rather, now well over a year ago, uh, and your study is quite recent since the pandemic outbreak, I'm wondering if you noticed, uh, and were that you even bothered to ask an uptick specifically related to COVID-19? Great question, Sterling. You know, in a full disclosure, this study was performed prior to the start of the pandemic. Oh, okay. We have certainly seen, we have certainly seen massive upticks in, uh, in the use of, of internet search in order to help with COVID-19 symptoms. And are the are the findings are are people using the information? For example, now we're into the vaccine phase, so there would be the initial inquiry into what on earth are we dealing with here. Then, David, we would have the vaccine and all of these multiple uh, Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and the list goes on, uh, and and the efficacy of all of that. And now we're learning about variants. So I don't imagine the traffic to Doctor Google uh, generally generated by COVID has diminished much. Do you? Oh, no, no. If anything, uh, we're, we're seeing large increases. And, and I think it's only a beneficial thing to be able to quickly navigate toward, you know, high quality information, whether it be from your province, your state, um, the CDC, and so on. And, and I think it's an interesting example of us trying to get high quality internet information searchers, which has always been a a concern in the past, right, that the internet is going to navigate us toward poor sources of information, which is actually something we looked at quite closely in this study. 
Uh, okay. Uh, I'm getting all sorts of emails as, as we're going along here, and I have one from Jim who says, we use this all the time, but only to gain a little bit of an understanding of what the problem could be. Then we take that knowledge to our family doctor, tell him what we've found, works like a charm, saves us time, saves him time, and uh, and, and he's very a, a proponent of this because, and I would imagine a lot of family physicians are positive, even though some of the old, old school guys are still 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 kind of grumbling and grumping about it. I would imagine a lot more family physicians are at least in a position, David, to hear, well, you know, doc, I've, 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 I've got this thing and I've never had it before. I went online and it says, I've got this. What do you think? And in many cases, your study has found out sometimes what the internet told that person they have turns out to be right. And if nothing else, it gives the doctor a few more clues about what to look for. That, that's exactly right. I agree with Jim Sterling. And I, I think that if anything, what our study is, is helping to show is that this is giving patients agency, right? This is giving folks a first start to think more deeply about their problem. We definitely still need our, our primary care and specialty care physicians. Sure. Um, but this is giving us that, that first look and, and is actually making us a little smarter while we do it. So any advice, Dr. Levine, this morning for people who are uh, naturally inclined? We had this go on in our house, as a matter of fact, in recent days. There was an unusual uh, bit of a medical thing noted. And, well, I went online and it says this. Uh, uh, so if, if you're uh, any, any advice for listeners this morning in terms of effectively using WebMD or Dr. Google or any of these searchable sites? I think my first piece of advice, Sterling, would be that we want to use high-quality sites, right? In, in our study, actually, folks almost, almost in their entirety use just a search engine or a health specialty site, something okay. like WebMD, WebMD or Healthline. Um, we don't want folks going to things like forums, social media sites in order yeah. to get their information. And in fact, in our study, very few people did, which I think is, is really good. So that's the Agreed. first piece of advice is really okay. go, go to high quality websites. I think the second thing is to, is to keep in mind kind of what, what you know and what you don't know. Um, we interestingly showed, for example, that older folks, females, and people who had more health problems were actually better um, at diagnosing what they had going on with or without the internet than mm. folks who were younger men or didn't have um, any sort of health problems. So being cognizant of kind of what your health literacy or, or the things you know about your body at, at baseline is really important to, to know how helpful or not helpful the internet will be for you. Interesting stuff. Uh, David, thanks very much for this. It's a real pleasure to have you on the program. The study findings are absolutely fascinating, and uh, we do appreciate your giving up a little bit of your Sunday morning to, uh, to uh, elaborate on some of your findings. Fascinating stuff. We're grateful. Many thanks for having me. Have a wonderful Sunday. Likewise. Dr. David Levine joining us from Boston and Women's 
uh, hospital there where he is on the internal medicine team. It's a fascinating study. Dr. Google and WebMD work. In the past year, the Chinese government has faced accusations of genocide from think tanks, from non-governmental organizations, from journalists that uh, have documented human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. This year, on February 22nd, Canada's House of Commons passed a motion to formally recognize that a genocide is indeed taking place in that region. The motion advanced by the Conservatives Michael Chong, passing by a vote of 266 to zero, the cabinet and the prime minister abstaining from the vote. Subsequent to that, a member of a committee who advises BC Premier John Horgan is under fire for referring to the accusations of Uyghur genocide in China as lies, as made up, the sort of story that we would hear from Beijing. Here to talk about, well, a lot this morning, uh, representing the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project is their executive director, Mehmet Tati, joining us on the line from Ottawa. Mehmet, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the reality. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, the personalities involved in a few minutes, Mehmet, but uh, it, it's important to remember what, and I had Michael Chong on this program a little while ago talking about that motion that he advanced in the House of Commons that passed 266 to nothing. That's rather a, a resounding number in a parliament where accord and agreement is very rarely found. Tell us why the, it was 266 to, to zero. Uh, because uh, International Human Rights Subcommittee, starting from 2018, they held more than 10 parliamentary hearings. They listened more than 25 witnesses, including first-hand witnesses, t- witness testimony, and uh, camp survivors' testimony, and their chilling stories at the same time. Uh, the members from Uyghur communities who are feeling that genocide living here in Canada mm-hmm. as their parents and the family members uh, either disappeared or locked up in concentration camps. And also a uh, subcommittee listened international experts, legal scholars, and they discussed from A to Z. And because of the, the mounting evidence, all of them irrefutable, and the committee had no choice, and uh, considering all the evidence at, at their hand available, mm-hmm. and they came to conclusion that this is indeed constitute genocide under 1948 Geneva Convention definition. And uh, so the the Parliament of Canada's vote, uh, based on the evidence advanced through uh, to its committees, uh, should that not have been a surprise to anyone in Canada? Of course, because if you look at the, the genocide denialists, they, they are not bringing any evidence on the table. Instead, they are spreading lies, and they say it is lies, lies, lies. What is, mm-hmm. that, is that lie? There is no explanation to it. On the other hand, if you look into the Chinese annual yearbook, Chinese Statistics Bureau's information equal to Census Canada, it is clearly said that Uyghur population's birth rate since 2018 till now dropped more than 35%. Mm-hmm. 
And if you look at the Chinese internal documents, and all shows one thing, there is genocide taking place, and uh, people without any process of uh, judicial regulation or existing laws in People's Republic of China. More than 3 million Uyghurs incarcerated in concentration camps. That is, you can go and you cannot return. Yeah. Uh, that is the situation they are trapped in. And the Uyghurs around the world, we are talking about tens of thousands of Uyghurs, including myself. We lost communication with our parents and the loved ones and the members of our families. Even if you don't know they are alive or dead, Chinese government uh, cut off all means of communication. Right. And also, we know from the satellite images that Chinese government is expanding the building concentration camps. And so, instead of uh, bringing anything to refute our argument or refute the witness account, and including the, the spokesperson of Beijing, the People's Republic of China in Beijing, and uh, uh, pro-China lobby groups or CC, pro-CCP genocide denialists, all the time they are repeating one thing, it is lie, lie, lie. So right. what is that lie? And we would like to know. Mehmet, you talked about the Uyghur community, the diaspora around the world. Can you take a moment to tell us how many members of the Uyghur community live here in Canada? How many expat Uyghurs we have in Canada? Uh, according to 2016 Census Canada, there, are, uh, there were 1,600 people identified themselves as Uyghur. And since then, because Chinese government confiscated passports from Uyghurs, and many Uyghurs, they trapped in third countries or inside East Turkestan that China calls as Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Xinjiang means new territory or a new dominion or new frontier. And so uh, since then, unfortunately, we didn't have that many Uyghurs arriving in Canada. And I can mm -hmm. say that with the natural growth of population and the family unification, maybe we have maximum 2,000 Uyghurs in Canada from coast to coast. And that includes the children, and that translates approximately six to 700 families. Right. Uh, Mehmet, may I ask a personal question, sir, because you talk about how the diaspora has been cut off from the domestic Uyghur population by the government through its deliberate activities. When was the last time you personally had contact with family members back home? The last time I spoke with my mother by phone was on October 23rd, 2016. It is almost more than four and a half years ago. And uh, on uh, July 20th, 2020, just four hours before I appear uh, before the International Human Rights Subcommittee to testify, I shall receive a chilling message from one person living in China. And it said, you F mother is dead. And I read that chilling message in two ways. One is probably they are trying to threaten, threaten me and uh, try to deter me from uh, going to testify before the subcommittee. Or sure. probably they killed my mother and there is mm -hmm. no way to verify. And can you imagine 
almost one year passed, still I could not verify whether my mother is dead or alive. After that chain of message. And in this age of technology, in this age of uh, the communication and so much available social platforms or communication tools. Sure. Still, we could not have access to make a simple phone call just to ask whether my mother is alive or my other 37 relatives are alive. We hear, Mehmet, uh, we hear of uh, of this sort of uh, external pressure being directed upon uh, people in Canada, people of Chinese heritage in Canada, by uh, the United Front and other agencies of Beijing, either operating here in Canada on our soil or operating back home. Monstrous numbers of people dedicated to this specifically, and we hear about this frequently about people who oppose Beijing and who are noticeable in their opposition, quietly receiving threats about family members back home whose lives may in jeopardy should you continue this attitude of criticism of Beijing. This is not rare. This is constant. Are you aware, for example, right now, of members and people that you know in the Uyghur community who are still receiving those types of threats besides yourself? It is, it is very common. It is very common. And as a Uyghur activist, I have been telling this kind of story to our government officials uh, as far as I remember since early 2000. And if you remember in 2010 or around that time, our chief uh, uh, person, uh, who is the director of uh, CSIS, uh, Richard Fadden, he mm-hmm. warned all uh, the Canadians, including the all levels of gov- uh, governments, uh, federal, provincial, and municipal governments, that there was a great number of infiltration from the China, especially pro-CCP groups in Canada, operating yes. in Canada. Since then, we haven't seen any measures taken by any level of governments to address this issue. And uh, if you look at the other countries, including the United States, and member states of European Union and Australia, either they introduced legislation, just like Transparency, Foreign Transparency Act, or mm-hmm. a Foreign Agent, Agency, Agent Registration Act, or similar acts. And also, they had multiple, more than uh, a dozen lawsuits, and they brought those people to the justice. But in Canada, we do not have a single lawsuit against those people. And still they are at large. They are operating within our government as a parallel government. And they infiltrated in our bureaucracies, in our uh, academia, academia, universities, and the top-level governments, including the B.C. governments. And they are advising our governments. It is unacceptable. Our guest this uh, half hour is the uh, executive director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, Mehmet Tati, on the line from Ottawa, talking, of course, about the resolution passed by the Parliament of Canada 266 to 0 back in February uh, regarding the genocide that is being committed by the uh, People's Government of China upon the Uyghur minority. Uh, and these, uh, di- these, 
accusations. These This resolution, the point of the resolution of the Canadian Parliament was simply to recognize that these sorts of activities, A, are taking place, and B, the international community does not approve. We can't do much beyond that, Mehmet, but it's the very least we could do, and we did, based on a lot of evidence submitted to them by people like yourself. And yet, subsequent to that, we have many prominent members of the Canadian Chinese community, including a member who, uh, 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 Mr. Horgan's advisory, China BC advisory committee, going on the airwaves of Canadian media subsequent to the parliamentary resolution and uh, saying it's all lies and made up, it's nonsense, uh, show us some proof and all of this sort of thing that Beijing has been saying almost word for word since the international community decided to react to the Uyghur genocide over a year ago. So now, uh, as you mentioned just before we went to break, Mehmet, uh, this sort of reaction from people in Canada is not surprising. Beijing has a lot of supporters in this country, but the fact that it was from a ranking member of a provincial government advisory committee that suggested to you something's really out of whack here. Yeah, indeed, uh, because uh, we keep them at loose and we keep them without any control and we open our doors uh, for them to infiltrate and operate in a secret way and influencing our decision-making process. And this should be uh, the alarming sound for all of us. And uh, we should have a proper legislation to address this issue, including the Transparency Act, for example, if someone advocates for something and we have to know where that money is coming from and uh, right. which uh, corporate chairs he's sitting and uh, where that cash flows uh, originated from and what purpose and because we don't have that kind of mechanism in Canada uh, in terms of legislation so people are feel free and uh, some members former members of cabinet and the uh, former members of our parliament after the uh, the term is ex, uh, expired or terminated, or the, the the after they did not seek the election, and they right. found the lucrative job from the CCP, and they are working to advance the interest of uh, CCP-led uh, communist government in Beijing, not the interest of Canada. And this is the issue that uh, I don't know how come this issue. Uh, it does not ring the bell, does not shock the conscience of Canadians and the Canadian politicians. And well, it, I it is not... <clears throat> Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think, first of all, I, I think Canadian politicians are decidedly in the rear of the, of the bus on this one, Mehmet, because it's been it's been shown by any number of Canadian polling organizations, not just one, many, many polling organizations have determined that over the past year, particularly, uh, opposition in the mind of a typical Canadian with respect to the way China does business, not only here in our country with all of the infiltration and, and all of that sort of thing, but just their agenda and to say nothing of the of the uh, atrocities being visited upon the Uyghurs. Most Canadians, 80% of Canadians are regretful that our government hasn't developed a spine and the ability to stand up to this. We, you mentioned Australia and other countries around the world that have said enough. Canada has yet to do that. And Canadians, to the tune of 80% of us, Mehmet, are frustrated that the government of Canada isn't there yet. You're absolutely right. 
Our, our uh, federal, municipal, or provincial government officials are far, far behind the general public of Canadians. And so uh, they have to catch up. And because this is important uh, the time for us to make the right decision. Yeah. And uh, since number of decades, and we uh, appease the Chinese government under the name of engagement, and uh, with the expectation of getting a certain share of business from China, mm-hmm. and the Chinese business almost controlled by Chinese Communist Party, and we forget to mention about the human rights, or we sideline the human rights, and we did not raise the fundamental issues, and we betrayed our own principles. And so what is the result? And we are now seeing that all of our uh, appeasement further emboldened the Chinese Communist Party. And now if you look at the Chinese ambassador in Canada, he himself, visioned himself just sitting in an imperial uh, throne and... uh, uh, given instruction to, to our elected institutions and elected officials what they should do, what they shouldn't do, and we don't see any reaction from the government. This is not acceptable. And the Chinese ambassador is acting like uh, our uh, governor general, giving orders from the embassy building and crossing the line of uh, the, uh, the protocol. And we in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, and the very small member countries of European Union, they stood up. And so far, we don't see any reaction from the Canadian government and the Chinese ambassador in Canada. He's a free man to go anywhere and speak and propagate the Chinese propaganda and influence on the Canadian public and mobilizing the, the, the people from Chinese descent and the giving money to Chinese students to organize a protest rally against Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these uh, things are happening right now in Canada. Well, we have an election coming up this year. I wonder if that's going to make the uh, make the election platform and the election debate. Uh, my guess is the government of Canada will try to suppress this as an issue to the to the max. They don't want to do. They don't want to bring this up. They don't want to talk about it because they're not very good at it. Mehmet Tadi, thank you so much for a little bit of your Sunday morning. It's an important update you've provided to us here in Vancouver. And to be fair, we should mention the individual that was criticized as being a member of Horgan's cabinet when he supported the. Beijing point of view on the Uyghur genocide is no longer a member of Mr. Horgan's Chinese Canada Advisory Committee. Their work wrapped up at the end of February. He will not seek reappointment. And it's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. And by way of welcoming, let me tell you that a new conservancy, conservancy rather, to protect the environment and wildlife in an area of northwestern BC, historically known as the Ice Mountain Lands, adjacent to Mount Zidza Provincial Park has been created. One of the partners in creating this conservancy is Skeena Resources Limited here in British Columbia. It's a pleasure to welcome Walter Coles, President and CEO of Skeena Resources, to talk about this conservancy and the work that went into it. Mr. Coles, Walter, good morning and thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for having me. And we're uh, it's it's great to have you on, Walter. It's a it's a pleasure. Tell us now about this conservancy and the partnership that you've created. Well, we're we're a mineral exploration company, and we've been working in the northwestern portion of British Columbia for about five years now. And mm-hmm. over that time period, we've gotten to know the indigenous people up there, the Taltan Nation, uh, quite quite well. And and when we were initially exploring for minerals, 
uh, we had an area that we call the, the spectrum mineral claims, and we came to understand through our conversations with the Taltan that this was close to their sacred Mount Isiza. And, and once we realized that and understood the, the cultural significance, uh, we decided that probably the best thing to do is turn it into a nature conservancy with the help of the Taltan and some other, other groups. So, Walter, is this is this particular tract of land, and I mispronounced the name of the park, of course, Mounted Zaiza, is it, is it directly adjacent to the park? Does it uh, border right up to the park? Exactly. Like our mineral claims, we had about 3,500 hectares, and they were adjacent to uh, Mounted Zaiza and, and almost sort of jutting into the provincial, provincial park there. And it's a huge provincial park, too, isn't it? And, and just for the benefit, Walter, if you could take a second, please, uh, for the benefit of those listening in and around Metro Vancouver and the island this morning, tell us what part of British Columbia specifically we're talking about. Where in the province is this uh, Where do you? Uh, this operation, this mineral claim of yours, and particularly this new conservancy? Yeah, it's, it's an area that's... Uh, quite world famous now it's, it's it's an area referred to as the golden triangle and it's referred to by that name because there are tremendous uh, deposits of copper and and gold and silver up there and it's an area that has a long history of of uh of mining um but what what we're trying to do is is balance our uh, focus of of mineral development with also reconciliation with the indigenous people up there and it's the northwestern section of bc and it's almost right up against Alaska. Yeah, we're talking Dees Lake, Telegraph Creek, that part of the province, right? Exactly. And those are all uh, towns that are within the, the traditional territory of the Taltan First Nation. Now, you have described, or at least you're quoted, Walter, as describing this particular initiative as reconciliation in action. How long and how much uh, cooperation was required uh, to with the Talton Nation to get this thing done. Oh, it, it was a couple of years. I, I, I mean, it, it initially was a bit of a um, a bit of a crushing blow when, uh, after you know, spending a, a fair amount of money doing exploration there, the Talton came to us and said, "You know, we really appreciate you not uh, building a mine in this area that's that's so close to our sacred mountain." So I, I think the outcome of turning this into a nature conservancy was a was um, was an was an incredible uh, example of collaboration between uh, the mining industry, First Nations, and government to take a situation that was potentially somewhat difficult and turn it into a real positive and and create this conservancy for you know for all time protected for future generations to use for. Uh, for recreation and, and also as a, as a protected area for wildlife. We're speaking with Walter Coles, the CEO of Skeena Resources. And Walter, yesterday on the program, we had precious metals, metals analyst David Smith on with us for a while and found out, or were reminded perhaps, but more accurately put, that in British Columbia, as you've already mentioned, we do indeed have gold and silver. It's not all in Northern Ontario. We have some of our own right here in BC. With the creation of this conservancy and walking away from the mineral claim uh, that uh, once represented the conservancy, does that in any way diminish Skeena Resources' 
opportunities to get at that gold we know is in northern BC. No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, we're talking about a very large area. Uh, Taltan territory is the size of Portugal. And, and for the most part, they want to see mineral development happen in their territory. But there's certain parts of their traditional land that they, you know, for, for traditional and cultural reasons, they would like to hold back from development. And sure. I think that's, that's fine. It's sort of a balanced approach. And, and this area is, in my opinion, now becoming the hottest area in the world for, uh, for mineral exploration, and specifically copper and gold. And when you think about the green revolution that's so often talked about in the press, mm-hmm. electric cars, solar, wind, all of that's going to require copper. And BC has an incredible opportunity to be the Saudi Arabia of copper production. And, and you're going to need copper to support this electrification theme as, as the world moves away from fossil fuels and gasoline-driven cars. That's why I use the analogy of Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, British Columbia can, can serve as the massive provider of raw materials to support that green revolution. It's an incredible well, it's, opportunity. It's really important that you say stuff like this, Walter, because British Columbia, when you go back to our provincial history, I mean, the pillars upon which this province were built, forestry, fishing, mining, a lot of that has diminished over the years, and including the mining sector, although in recent years it's come back, roaring back, in fact, and now we are in a position to go through a period of expansion and return, in many ways, the mining sector to its position of province prominence as a, a, a still a necessary pillar of the BC economy. You're, you're exactly right. But the key for BC to be the global leader is that collaboration between industry, government, and First Nation. If we all work together, we can accomplish incredible things. And I, and I, I do think this creation of this nature conservancy is an example of that collaboration and, and saying, okay, this area is culturally important. We don't want to see mineral development there. But in these other areas, the Taltan are enormously supportive and the government's very supportive. So, again, I just think uh, BC has an incredible opportunity here. And I'm curious, Walter, as as a, the, as a leader in this model of negotiated arrangements, are you already being approached by your peers in other mining companies and organizations going, well, that was pretty amazing. How did you pull that off? Because we sure want to get to there uh, on one of our projects down the road. Are you already giving advice? Yeah, I, I think other people are thinking the same way in our industry. The industry has changed. Um, you know, I think we have a, 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 a younger generation of, of both First Nations and industry and government people who are all coming at this from a fresh perspective and saying, let's not, let's not, uh, let's not have fights. Let's, let's sit down. Let's talk to each other. Let's have that, those reconciliation discussions. Let's be uh, collaborative and figure out win-win outcomes. Uh, final question to you, Walter Coles, and we do appreciate your time. Uh, just poking around in the mining sector press and so on, and I'm looking at some of the organizations south of us in Washington State who are expressing a fair bit of concern about BC mining practices with respect to tailings, ponds, and all of that sort of thing. Should British Columbia be in a position in the future to be, as you suggest, Walter, the Saudi Arabia of the mining world, given the, the resources we're sitting on, would part Part of that 
uh, elevation in status also include uh, an increased vigilance on our mining practices? Well, I, I think uh, British Columbia is already a world leader in environmental regulation. And, and I think we're just taking it to the next step with reconciliation. I think BC uh, will be the leader in the world for how mines should be developed in a uh, sustainable manner that, that protects the environment and recognizes all of the uh, inherent uh, cultural and, and traditional rights of the indigenous people uh, with whom we partner. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to write the the, uh, the observations that I was uh, make, alluding to with respect to concerns south of the line were addressed also by the mining industry very swiftly, who did say exactly what you just said. British Columbia has some of the most stringent mining regulations on planet Earth. That's exactly right. And, you know, the other thing I'd I, I point you to is in the creation of this Nature Conservancy, we worked with, with several uh, non-governmental organizations who were involved with this, and I think all of them said this is a model for how uh, the mining industry and environmental groups and indigenous people uh, should work together. And, and you can have mining and you can have the prosperity that comes from it if you do it in a manner that's respectful. And BC, BC should be the world leader in this. Well, I couldn't agree more. And Walter Coles, congratulations to you and your team at Skeena Resources uh, for the effort and a lot of work that went into creating this Nature Conservancy. We wish you considerable success and you hunt for gold as well, Walter. Thanks for being with us this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Back in January, several fish farms applied for a judicial review challenging the federal government's decision to phase out farms in the Discovery Islands area here in B.C. off Campbell River and restrict the transfer of live fish to the farms during that phase-out period. Well, a few days ago, a federal court judge has suspended that ban on restocking those three fish farms in the Discovery Island, saying basically that the companies would suffer real and irreparable harm if they aren't allowed to restock the farms uh, located in the Discovery Islands. So here to talk about it this morning is Bob Chamberlain back with us. Mr. Chamberlain is the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Uh, Joining us, as usual, I expect Bob from Nanaimo. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm fine. Thank you, Bob. You were following this case. You and I have talked about it. I should also mention that we offered airtime to the Salmon Farmers Association again this morning, and again, they declined. So, Bob, the first of all, the decision, were you surprised by the fact that the judge uh, intervened and, uh, and uh, uh, adjusted the, the decision? Well, I'm very disappointed in the outcome, but I'm also very disappointed that the court ruled that the First Nations who were part of the consultation process were denied uh, to enjoin the action or be interveners. And if the shoe was on the other foot, the industry would be automatically put into the mix. But this judge decided that the First Nations were not allowed to uh, speak to the injunction. And so it was a a horribly one-sided perspective. It didn't cover off all the information that would have been provided from First Nation participation. Well, let's uh, just talk about the nuts and bolts of the decision, if we might, for a moment, please. The uh, Because, first of all, the announcement, this goes back to an announcement by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and Minister Bernadette Jordan, uh, saying just before Christmas that 19 fish farms in the area would be phased out by July next year, and that no new fish could be transferred to those farms in the interim. And the and the, the fish farm said, no, wait a second, uh, you know, if you if you take the transfer of fish out of, uh, out of the 
uh, of the equation, then we're going to be uh, irrevocably harmed financially, and it's going to be a major blow. And the judge agreed. Is that the nuts and bolts as you understand it? Well, as I understand it, when the decision was made in December, the no introduction of new fish is the issue because that's a separate process from the issuance of a fish farm license. So they're given the fish farm license for the time frame you described, but there's another process where they apply to transfer fish in. And that's what the courts have said they can now do apply for consideration by the minister to put fish in those farms. So it kicked open another process And, of course, the First Nations that I've been working with are very much expecting a deep consultation on the transfer of those fish. So if the fish get transferred in, uh, there's something in the story about a five-year cycle. You would know more about the, the, the life cycle of a salmon than I on this one, Bob. But what, what if suppose now that w- there were supposed to be no new fish transferred into these farms, the judge says, now, wait a second, too much harm would come, so let's start transferring fish back in. What does that mean? Does it mean that tr- fish being transferred back in, uh, back in rather, negates or removes the minister's order to close the farms next July because they're they're fish to raise still? No, I don't believe so. I know that the industry table documents in the in the injunction that said they quite readily accept the time frame for when those fish farm licenses come to an end and whatever size their fish are, they would harvest them and then close the shop. Okay. So so then, when you think about the five-year, they're talking about the time it takes to raise them in the hatcheries. But the fact that they didn't plan for this outcome shows me some extremely poor business planning, and it shows me that they put all their eggs in one basket and are now crying foul for their own decisions. And the decisions they made in planning affects their employees, which they are now turning and blaming the government for. Well, now, as, as to the First Nations uh, being disallowed intervener status, nonetheless, though, Bob, wasn't this a court case? Were, was there not an opportunity for the position taken by First Nations in this to be advanced as evidence of some description in the court case? No, there was not. And that is exactly why the First Nations that I worked with wanted to be a part of the injunction hearing to ensure that their perspectives and the rationale put forward and the accommodation sought were spoken to clearly in front of the judge. And then, of course, we've become aware of other things, like, such as communications from access to information, where you know there's other diseases that are now being um, identified in the Discovery Islands area, where DFO had internal communications, sitting on the information, but engaging with industry, but not letting the minister know. And so we have a very clear systemic problem and the minister being kept in the dark of emerging proof of impact to Chinook, to Coho and Sakai in the Discovery Islands area. But as far as the federal fisheries master plan for this part of the world, uh, specifically with the elimination of these farms in the Discovery Islands area, that's still going to go forward uh, on time, as you understand it this morning. Yes, Bob? Yes, that's what the industry tabled in their documents, that they accept the timeline uh, when these farms will come to an end. But of course, when those of us that have been so focused on this struggle, it has been a struggle to protect wild salmon. And so Mm -hmm. what we need now is a government to truly embrace the status that is wild salmon in British Columbia 
and come forward working with the provincial government and First Nations to identify what needs to be done to restore salmon stocks in B.C. And this is something that we have not seen to date. We've seen some great efforts from the provincial government in terms of uh, contribution to a federal responsibility to the tune of, I think it's $32 million. But what we need is a once-in-a-lifetime, multi-year investment in wild salmon here in British Columbia. And what about the other side of that coin, Bob, in terms of uh, fish farming going forward? You and I have discussed the notion of land-based fish farms, which are considerably more expensive than open pen in ocean farms, but it has the, the adjustment, the pivot has been taken by other countries in the world. Uh, do you see uh, and do the uh, First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance ever envision British Columbia, and I guess they're mostly Norwegian, uh, fish uh, farm companies moving their operations to on land? Well, I am aware that there are investors ready to go in terms of developing land-based closed containment in British Columbia. I've okay. had numerous meetings with them. They've got models that are effective from ten, you know, tens of thousands of tons down to 1,000 tons production. So there is opportunity. But what we need is the federal and provincial governments to step up and work with an emerging industry component now to ensure that we don't lose out on this uh, global evolution of aquaculture and watch other countries benefit while mm-hmm. we uh, are misguided by industry that do not want to do this for whatever reasons. I mean, they, they enjoy offloading all their waste into the environment and impacting wild salmon for their profit margins. They don't want to lose that. But the thing is, the evolution's underway. We need provincial and federal governments to meet with these investors and get on with developing the, the appropriate package for an emerging industry so we can remove this argument, so we can have an industry that doesn't come at the cost of healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks in B.C. Indeed. Bob, uh, let's hope that uh, resolution is uh, reachable. We appreciate your time again this morning. It's an important topic, and we're not going to let it go. Thanks for the update. Thank you very much. It is Animal Cruelty Prevention Month this month. And did you know that the folks at our SPCA respond to an average of 8,000 annual cruelty animal complaints in British Columbia? Well, with that in mind, we welcome to the, to the program this morning. We welcome back to the program this morning, Eileen Drever, Senior Officer, Protection and Stakeholder Relations with the British Columbia SPCA. Eileen, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me back. Oh, it's great to have you, Eileen. It's always lots of fun to have you on board, although this is a pretty serious uh, bit of business here with the annual uh, Animal Cruelty Awareness Month. And it's, you know, because you people do such good work uh, and and because most of the times we have opportunities to talk to you on the radio, it's usually such terribly positive things. But Eileen, this morning, uh, 8,000 animal cruelty complaints every year in British Columbia. That's uh, That's unacceptable, isn't it? Well, well, it is, but I, I actually, it's quite heartwarming because years and years ago, we weren't getting as many cruelty complaints as we are today. And I think it's because people are finding it unacceptable. Um, in the past, it was okay for a dog to be on a chain. It was okay for animals to be left without shelter, but it's not today. So, in fact, um, it's quite it's quite heartwarming knowing that people are finding animal abuse and neglect totally unacceptable. 
Okay, so that in, if it's a kind of a good news, bad news story in the sense that more of us are feeling more comfortable about coming forward when we see examples of animal cruelty that we just see cross a line. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, although the numbers are up there, 8,000 animal cruelty complaints in a year, most of these are resolved through education. So that that's that's a good good thing too. Um, so when an officer receives a complaint, we attend the call, and if we determine an animal is in distress, we make recommendations. Now, if the animal owner or caregiver fails to follow the recommendations we make, then we have to step up a notch, and that could be, unfortunately, the application of and the execution of a search warrant. Right. But most of them are resolved by education. Interesting. Can we talk about the basics, though, just to step back one, if you don't mind, <laughs> Eileen, for a moment, please? Because again, as as you are uh, uh, delighted to report this morning, more British Columbians are feeling more comfortable about coming forward when they see what they think is an example of cruelty to animals. Can we talk about what you at the SPCA define as cruelty to animals so the next time we see something that we think might cross a line we can go but at the spca they might say that's okay or i know at the spca they'd be as mad as i am yes okay i can do that now we we have legislation it's called the prevention of cruelty to animals act we enforce that legislation as well as excerpts of the criminal code of canada Now, in our legislation, if an an animal is in distress, if it's deprived of adequate food, water, shelter, ventilation, light, space, exercise, care, or veterinary treatment, Mm -hmm. kept in in conditions that are unsanitary, not protected from excessive heat or cold, injured, sick, in pain or suffering, or abused or neglected. So that covers a whole range of issues. And that's when we determine if an animal is in distress, then we have to take steps to relieve that distress. Okay, so now you described a situation in which an animal control uh, officer, uh, first of all, what do you call the uh, the officers at, at the SPCA who have the authority to uh, do the investigations, to execute a search warrant, and if necessary, to apprehend animals? What are those uh, officers in the SPCA called? Well, we are called special provincial constables, and we're sworn in under the Police Act. Oh, okay. Now, All right. now there are other officers who are um, who also investigate animal abuse and neglect, but they're unable to enforce the legislation. They're called animal protection officers, um, but they're not sworn in under the Police Act to enforce that legislation. So, if uh, an animal protection officer were to attend a call, found that there were issues that they, they need to step up on, then mm. it would be passed along to a special provincial constable. I see. Okay. So if someone reports uh, what they see appears to be an an example of animal cruelty, uh, so then when a complaint comes in, you're like the police department in that regard, aren't you, Eileen? If you receive a complaint, you must at least act on the complaint. It it doesn't say somebody's going to get arrested, but if you get a complaint, you have no choice. You have to act on the complaint, don't you? 
Yes. Well, it is permissive, but yes, we, we respond to each and every complaint received. And as I say, I'm glad that the majority of complaints we do receive are are, are actually fine. Um, people just don't know. And... Um, and then the ones that we, the, the ones which are legitimate, uh, we don't have a problem going out and educating the owner or caregiver. Well, so the, of course, the obvious and, and ref, remedy of preference every time would be let's get this situation fixed. Let's get it fixed right here, right now. This animal needs this, this, and this. Are you prepared to give the animal this, this, and this right now? Is that usually the way it goes? That's usually the way it goes, unless, of course, it's, it's deliberate acts of abuse, in which case we wouldn't we would we would take further action immediately. Ah, for example, so, let me just explain. So, yeah, please. Sure. We have had we have had calls in the past where um, uh, a neighbor observes someone, uh, uh, an individual observes someone abusing their dog on a balcony and mm. inflicting pain. We've, they've recorded that, and then they've contacted the SPCA. We will act upon that immediately. Right. And, of course, there's video evidence, so it's a pretty uh, open and shut case uh, from that point yes. of view. Correct. Uh, Correct. And, and so yes. what do you, you, you do? And, again, I'm just, I'm just trying to follow the flow here. Would the animal, would the, be the SPCA person who showed up to act on the complaint show the person in the video the evidence here you are on your balcony beating your dog sir that's not mm-hmm. that's not allowed uh, yeah. and you confront the individual with the evidence what we would do is we would apply for a warrant immediately under those circumstances because we wouldn't want to take a chance to leave that animal in that situation for fear of it happening again. And um, the next time around, it could be fatal for the animal. So remember, we are a voice for the animals, and we have to take the steps necessary to save it. Eileen Drever is our guest. Eileen is a senior officer, protection and stakeholder relations with the BCSPCA, here to remind us all that this is Animal Cruelty Awareness Month. And the folks at the BCSPCA uh, uh, typically, Eileen, handle about 8,000 calls regarding animal cruelty per year. We have a call center in BC, don't we? Yes, we do. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm so relieved to get this call center. It came into effect a few years ago. Um, so anybody from all over um, British Columbia can contact our animal call center, our cruelty call center, and at no charge to them. And, um, and then that will be entered into, our, that will generate a file, a complaint file, and then an animal protection officer or special provincial constable will pick up the file and then investigate. Mm. We know from our friends at the 911 call center, Eileen, that not all the calls that come into the uh, the hotline are necessarily uh, emergencies. And I'm wondering, and I'm not being too flippant here, but I'm wondering of the 8,000 calls that typically come in to the SPCA call center per year in BC, how many of those are are frivolous. You know, the, the guy across yeah. the street, he's got two big dogs and they won't shut up. I'm trying to get a sleep here and they won't, they bark and they bark. They're not, they're not bad. They're not, they're not ra- they're, you know, rabid or anything. They're not destroying anything. They just won't shut up. So I'm going to call the SPCA and they'll do something. 
Well, I don't, I'm not sure of those numbers, but the 8,000 cruelty complaints are just specifically cruelty complaints. We get many, many more complaints with respect to wildlife or injured animals. So out of the 8,000, how many are frivolous? I'm not quite sure. Mm. But now you've got, I'm curious. I'm going to find out. And I no, can get okay. back to you with that. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that. And I know you will because you're, you're conscientious that way. And it just struck me that because <laughs> yeah. we do it every, we do it at every year. And we just got through it at, at, at the end of the year. But in January, the, the 911 people have at least a moment of lightness every day, one year or one day per year when they put out the list of silly things people call 911 for. Uh, so that I just sort of had that in the back of my mind. When we talk about uh, consequences for British Columbians, for citizens who are uh, clearly uh, crossing the line and who do commit unspeakable acts of cruelty to animals. Uh, Typically, uh, once the complaint is received and acted upon, the first concern on the part of the the BCSPCA, Eileen, obviously is the welfare of the animals. But that does not exclude consequences for negligent humans, does it? No, it doesn't. And um, we have recommended many cases to Crown Council and the maximum penalty of someone abusing or neglecting an animal in British Columbia is a seven, under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act is a $75,000 fine, a two years imprisonment and or a prohibition from owning animals, mm-hmm. which to me, the prohibition is much better than, than just a fine. Right. And, and does that happen often? Does it, does it usually come, for example, hand in glove? Here's a fine and you're not allowed to own animals either for X years. Um, it can happen. Um, I would like to see it happen more often, quite frankly, but it can happen and it has happened. Um, the, the maximum penalties in my 41 years, I've never seen anybody receive the maximum penalties. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has, has, have there been at least some hefty fines awarded to you in your re- recollection? Um, to, yes, perhaps to companies, but not mm. to, really to individuals. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, the fact of the matter is most of us are really good with our animals. Mm-hmm. The, some individuals, the individuals that we deal with, has to, there has to have... Oh, mental health issues, because who in the right mind would deliberately um, injure or neglect an animal? So what we're doing today is we're working with other um, stakeholders, for example, social services. If someone is, has too many animals, we'd like to not just help the animals, but to help the individual as well. And that's mm-hmm. what we're doing now. Yeah. Ah, because you hear you hear people hoarding, uh, and you think, okay, that's fine, unless they're hoarding animals. In which case, then you're you're definitely in a whole different area of activity, aren't you? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's no point in taking someone who's hoarding two hundred, two hundred and fifty cats in a six hundred square foot area, um, all their cats away, because they'll just get some more. Mm. Um, so we really need to help the individuals help let them get the help that they need what are some of the biggest challenges that you and your 41 years of experience you should be able to answer this one pretty easily that you and your fellow animal protection officers face these days eileen oh well um i can say that if we have removed animals from a certain situation and the owner 
Now, I should explain this as well, that if we seize animals from an individual, um, Marcy Moriarty, our chief prevention and enforcement officer, will mm-hmm. make a decision uh, whether or not to return those animals. If the animals are not returned, then the owner uh, can then apply to the BC Farm Industry Review Board. This is an independent body, a third party, and they will look at the file. They will hold a hearing, if you will, and they will then make a decision whether or not to return the animals. So it's completely out of our hands. And it's really unfortunate when animals are returned to a situation. Does the SPCA have a job to do? Yeah. Do you have? Do you at least get to show up at the hearings, Eileen? Do you at least get to, to, re, to remind the tribunal that is hearing this case of your position? Oh yes, yes. We it's okay. like a mini trial. So yeah. the owner will give their, you know, um, their side of the story, and we'll give our side of the story, and then they make a decision. But I can say that that's that can be quite disturbing when animals are returned. When we feel we've we've done everything we can, and the last resort is to remove an animal from an individual. Mm. And uh, flip the coin for us in the remaining <laughs> few seconds we have and talk about what are the biggest rewards for being doing the job that you and your colleagues do. One of the biggest rewards is to see the animals um, be adopted into a new forever home. Mm-hmm. Um, animals which have been really badly neglected or abused that are fearful of people at you know, to see them come around and trust people again is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Um, it's also very rewarding when the owners recognize they need help and that we're helping them and, and rectifying problems. That's rewarding as well. But I, I can it say it's um, emotionally, it's very draining and um, it, it can take its toll seeing these animals being abused and neglected. And, and I'm, I'm so happy that the organization provides counseling to their staff for this um, because it, it, can, it can wear you down. I'm sure it does. Well, you'll be happy to know, and you'll remember this from just a few Christmases ago, because I do believe you were personally involved in the apprehension <laughs> of a puppy mill in Langley, uh, the uh, the occupants of whom eventually came to be referred to as the Langley 66. Yes. Remember that group yes. from, from here? Well, oh. one, one of those little Wheaton Terriers from the Langley 66 is ours. And she is everything that you were just talking about in terms of being rewarded for doing the kind of work you do, watching a a, a badly neglected, abused animal come out of her shell in in our case and and just become an amazing little dog after a a pretty awful start to life. And I thank you for the work that you do and for making Gracie part of our life. And uh, we always uh, enjoy having you on our program, Eileen. Thanks for giving us a little bit of your Sunday morning. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you to your listeners for their support. Without them, we couldn't do this work because we're not funded by the government. So thank you very much. much. And welcome to the Arts Corner and DOXA, the Documentary Film Festival, Western Canada's biggest documentary film festival, returns to present the very special 20th anniversary edition, streaming online, coming up fast to May 6th to 16th. And here to talk about the DOXA Festival is its Director of Programming, Selena Cramond. Selena, good morning and thanks for being with us today. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me. 
Well, it's good to have you with us, Selena. Remind those of our listeners who aren't familiar with DOXA exactly what it's all about and how you've managed to last 20 years. <laughs> sure, yeah. So DOXA's, um, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's hard uh, thinking about it in these days. But yeah, so DOXA, DOXA is um, a documentary film festival. So we show uh, films from all over the world, um, you know, that are, are centered around telling nonfiction stories or stories that center real-life people. And um, we were actually founded in 1998 and, and ran a series of on-and-off-again festivals for the first few years and mm-hmm. and became an annual event in, in 2004. So, you know, in the old days, <laughs> you know, as late as uh, 2019, we would have big screenings downtown and at yeah. venues across the Lower Mainland. and. Of course, uh, 2020 uh, threw a real wrench in our plans, and we had to pivot online, and and we're doing the same again this year. Now, what uh, lessons were you able to learn last year, literally on the fly, Selena, that you'll have now under your belt that you'll be able to reapply and uh, in not quite so panicky uh, a a mode that you had (laughs) to do last year? Yeah, well, um, you know, it's it's hard because things are still changing uh, with technology and, and getting screening rights for films and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, just with everything kind of streaming on Netflix and, and online these days. It does complicate sure. things a little bit for us in the online environment. Um, but we, you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways I, I took last year was just how kind and generous um, our, our audiences were. You know, folks really, really... Uh, came along for the ride. People took a chance with us, filmmakers as well. Everybody um, was open to to change, and and we we gave it a shot. And our audience numbers, you know, they dropped a little bit uh, last year with sure. the pivot to online. But I think this year, you know, we're we're prepared, <laughs> and um, you know, folks have had a whole year to get used to to streaming online and and mm-hmm. to to just um, hopefully, you know, watching these kinds of presentations from the comfort of their own home. Well, back in the old days when humans were allowed to congregate, Selena, and say 2019, <laughs> way back in 19, how, how typically what sort of audience uh, over the run of the Doxa Festival would you end up? What sort of numbers would you end up with? Uh, we'd see around 10,000 people coming in and out of the venues. Um, you know, and the, and the types of folks really vary. And that's kind of the wonderful thing about Doxa, the documentary film festival, is we we show a wide range of, of films about a, a wide range of topics. So, you know, sometimes you, you get a certain demographic for one film and then you get other folks coming out for another type of film. And, and that's what I really love about it is there's, there's something for everybody, um, you know, so. Okay. You're, you're the yeah. director of programming. So I got a, cu- a couple of questions for you. One about a specific film, but more importantly, Selena, how does someone make the cut? He said with on the final day of the master's golf tournament, when those who have made the cut <laughs> still get to play, how does one make the cut and get included in the Doxa festival, particularly the big one, like the 20th anniversary? You're the person, are you the, is there a committee that makes those decisions? Yeah, exactly. We have a committee of folks who've been with us for a number of years who who help preview all the films. And, you know, even given COVID, we we still saw a record record number of submissions. So I think we were sitting at around 1,300 films. And of course, you know, we can only host between 70 and 100 every year. So we had to make some some very difficult decisions. Um, But, you know, I think we've got a wide range of folks on the committee. And and we just, we try to look for films that, that are speaking to to issues of the day um and 
um, that's that's kind of the most important thing. And then, of course, we really want to champion the art of filmmaking. So folks mm-hmm. are pushing the boundaries of what a documentary can do. Um, we'll, we'll definitely prioritize those films as well. Now, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you specifically about a documentary included in this year's festival called The Gig is Up. Love the title, first of all. But it's also, <laughs> you, talk about, you talk about films that reflect what's going on in the world today. And it's not just because of COVID, but that certainly accelerated things, Selena. Uh, the gig economy, people working for themselves, people doing freelance work. It's not just a, son of a, a thing, a sideline thing anymore. It repre- represents a very significant percentage of the workforce, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're really thrilled to be opening with The Gig Is Up. Um, And I think specifically what's interesting and urgent about this film is it really highlights um, what's known as the platform economy. So so jobs that are essentially run through through apps, you know, Uber Eats, uh, the the car share, the ride shares, um, other computer programs, folks who get hired by Amazon, for example, to take photos. it's really, you know, we're we're in a situation where AI is starting to to control people's workplaces, and and that's I think it's a it's a pretty critical issue that isn't um, talked about that much just yet. It, it sort of went flew under the radar. I think we all got excited about using these apps of convenience, but um, this film does a great job of exposing the very human labor behind behind the scenes of those apps. I'll bet it does. Is this an American film, by the way, Selena? No, it's actually um, directed by Canadian director uh, Shannon Walsh, who's here in Vancouver. She teaches at UBC in the film program, um, and this is uh, her feature documentary. She does travel around the world to meet workers um, all over the place. So it's uh, global in scope, but locally, locally made. Okay, now we need to take a few minutes here. We don't have too many left, so let's take a few minutes and comfortably inform listeners of CKNW right here, right now, Selena, who may not have uh, enjoyed uh, the Doxa Festival in previous years, but who, under the current circumstances, are really looking for something to do and something stimulating to, to do would be even more fun. How does one who unfamiliar with the process become involved in DOXA and, and gain access to all of these screenings? Yeah, so the, the most important thing to note is our website, doxa, D-O-X-A, festival.ca. And so that's where all the streaming happens online, and that's where you can get your tickets and your festival pass and our schedule of live streaming events. So that's really the most important thing to note. We have um, just put together a beautiful 88-page program book that that is a physical document, and it'll be available at coffee shops, grocery stores. If, if you're still going out there in the world, make sure mm-hmm. you, you try to pick one of those up because it's quite lovely. We've got essays that contextualize some of the films in the program. Um, but really, it is that, that website that you're going to want to check out. And once you get there, it's a pretty straightforward process you know you you purchase a pass that's probably the easiest way to go about it and then you get Mm. access to all 90 films in the program that are are streaming and essentially once you hit unlock and you open your film you've got 48 hours to to view the film and and we've got tons of live streaming events to complement so Mm -hmm. if the gig is up for example we've scheduled a live streaming Q&A with the director and hopefully some folks in the film will come out and so people can engage with us over social media and and on our online platform to, to ask Fantastic. questions. Fantastic. 
Well, I'm yeah. on the website right now. It's Doxa Festival, D-O-X-A Festival, one word, doxafestival.ca. It's a great website, by the way, nicely done. Uh, and it's got all the information. It is very user-friendly. Look, if I can figure out, Selena, uh, most <laughs> everyone else can. I'm no techno whiz, just ask Ray. So if I, uh, doxafestival.ca, it starts May 6th. It runs to May 16th. The director of programming for this year's 20th anniversary festival is Selena Crammond. And she's just keen as all get out to have you see this stuff. Doxafestival.ca. Selena Crammon, thank you for joining us this morning. Thumbs up and considerable success to you with this year's event. Thanks, Sterling. Appreciate it. Our- Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.